everybody thanks for tuning in to the recovering fundamentalist podcast it's good to have you here with us today and uh, guys i'm real excited about something that we have coming up in january of next year but it's just a few months away and uh and i i don't know how much to say or let out of the bag but i'm i'm pretty fired up about this trip what's y'all's thoughts right now without saying anything what's your thoughts First of all, my thoughts are, I cannot wait till 2023. This is going to be amazing, but more to come. It's just going to be an incredible experience, uh, unforgettable. Once people experience this, they'll never, ever, ever walk away from it and be the same. Definitely. So just some, some heads up, this is going to be a... A thing for 30 people only, and it's a select group. So it is a, and we're going to take some heat for this. Get ready, boys. The emails are going to come flooding in, but this is for 30 male pastors. Um, <laughs> so, uh, JC said it. I said it. I'm you know, just, well, all the men preachers, please stand <laughs> all the men preachers. The, I've heard that so many times. And, so, and, and JC, we need to clarify that an organization approached us yeah. about doing this trip and their ministry is two pastors. Right. Male. And it's, it's two male pastors and uh, the, yeah. And, and they offered this to us and it's just going to be incredible. Ladies, we love you. Even if you're a lady pastor, we love you. We don't want to put anybody down. We don't, we don't want to throw rocks at anybody, but this is an opportunity God opened up for us and we have a heart for pastors and all three of us mentor pastors and this is just going to be an unbelievable opportunity i'm i'm so excited let you know more next week but it's coming and we are super excited about that hey guys guess what we're getting on a plane in just a couple days heading up to new york we're gonna be at brooklyn tab interviewing pastor jim cimbala and i fired up about that we should probably go ahead and buy those plane tickets. I didn't even think about that. Oh yeah. Yep. That would be smart. And <laughs> by the way, Greyhound. right now, as everybody's listening to this, I'm in Disney or maybe I'm back from Disney, but had the opportunity to go as a chaplain for a high school senior trip That's to cool. Disney. And I'm going to share the gospel every night and to be a part of that. And, uh, just the Lord opened some incredible doors. And I know all the drama that's going on with Disney. They've been going in the tank for years with their all, all the crazy stuff they're doing. You know what? I'm going to go down there with these kids. I'm going to enjoy it for the glory of God. And I'm going to uh, dive into the Bible every night with them. So it's going to be awesome. And, and AJ, my uh, JC, you and, and Brian both know my buddy, AJ, my drummer yeah, buddy, yep. AJ, that has been drumming for me since he was 17, like, like 18, 19 years ago. And, uh, he's always wanted to take a trip to Disney That's and cool. I was able to take someone with me on this trip. We raised the money for him. AJ is going to Disney for the first time. Oh, it's a trip awesome. of a lifetime for AJ. He is just so excited about this. So man, it's going to be incredible. And I think by the time you hear this, I'll either be there or be on my way back. But, uh, Disney, That's here cool. we come. I'm going to Disney. I've never been. My parents took us to uh, Lake Winnie and told us it was Disney. 
Winnie, if you've rode the boat shoot at Lake Winnie, you're cured from any COVID uh, that will ever happen again. That water is absolutely disgusting. Radioactive. But yeah, we went to just... Disney. We went to Disney when Kelsey was about four, and she's 25 now, and I don't think we've ever financially recovered yet. Yeah, <laughs> There's I'm no telling way I'd you. ever be able to go. I just wouldn't wouldn't be able to do it. I think hey. when, the, when this episode comes out, what? go ahead. No, I was I was going to let you finish. I was just going to say, Brian, if you'll take out a life insurance policy on yourself, after you pass away, your family will be able to afford a Disney cruise. So <laughs> cruise, just, yeah. just something to think about. I'll put that on the radar. But when this episode comes out, whenever it does, I'm actually in Chattanooga. I don't know if y'all knew this. My sister's getting married. Um, Nathan, I think you remember that this is, this is weird. She's marrying one of my best friends. You remember Chris Teddy Fowler, Chris Fowler? I remember you talking about him. Yeah. I've I've known Chris for 25 plus years. We have done camps. We've traveled all over. Um, we were up with Jim Fox up in Kentucky years ago, and they've met, fell in lust or love, whatever it is. And they're getting <laughs> married, and so I'm actually going to do her wedding this weekend, and so I'm pretty excited about that. And I just, it's weird. She's married my best friend and I've loved him longer than I loved her. So it's kind of, kind of weird, but as you look back, do you wonder if he only hung around you all those times just for your sister? No, he's my age. So it's like, that's weird. That's like, (laughs) Hey, you want to talk about weird so far? What I know from this episode is Nathan loves women preachers and he's awaiting my death. <laughs> I, mean, I do love women preachers. We're called to love everybody. I may not agree with every aspect, but Brian, hey, I don't. I don't want you to die. Hey, maybe I, I, I can. I don't even want to think and, about you dying. Put me. In maybe the I can. Maybe I can leave in my will that after I die, a portion of the money goes to you being able to take women preachers to Disney on a trip. <laughs> that <laughs> will not happen. <laughs> Brian, leave all of your hope church hats to me i will i'll make sure I, I, i'll even get you new ones if you'll wear wait. one i will send you a brand new one you send me one i will wear it next episode wow. oh man i can't wait my 40th is on the 25th go ahead and send me a hope church hat notice notice the the blue yeah here matches you, the blue. your hat always matches always yeah what do you it's wear a, at the beach though it's, it's part of your mystique a hope hat <laughs> a hope hat that's all just the hat, all right. <laughs> just the hat. <laughs> no i love people too much <laughs> like that guy's oh. terminally white uh, <laughs> oh goodness well today's episode is uh going to be a pre-recorded episode um and we just wanted to give you a heads up that it could be a little um on the edgy side and so if you are listening to this and you have uh, some some kids that are in the car or that will be around you. Today's episode will be a little bit heavier, and uh, there's going to be some content, some language that you just may want uh, little ears or those that don't want to ask questions to hear yet. And uh, Brian, you want to set up what today's episode is, and then we'll jump right into it. Yes, Walt Heyer was born a male, was cross-dressed by his grandmother at an early age, lived a life of confusion until he underwent gender reassignment surgery, lived as Laura Jensen for eight years. So lived completely as a woman, even having all of his legal documentation and everything changed 
and then he was saved by Jesus Christ, mm. redeemed and restored. He couldn't reverse the effects of all that was done, but he reclaimed his God-given gender, and he's now been married for over 25 years, wow. and he serves Jesus all over the world, telling the story on television stations, even recently being in, interviewed by people like Laura Ingram, Candace Owen, different ones. Um, Walt is an amazing man, and God gave me the privilege to sit down and have an incredibly insightful conversation with him. And the response, guys, to this has been nothing short of incredible. And I'm so thankful that this can be shared because the church has to step into difficult, uncomfortable spaces. We have to because that's the culture we're living in. And when you read the New Testament epistles, they address the sins of the day and the issues of the day. And for too long, the church has not done that or even done that with ignorance or with crass speech. And we want to make sure that we step into the issue in a good way. And we want to make Jesus look great. Amen. I think we should jump right into today's episode. Y'all ready? I'm ready. Yes, sir. Let <clears throat> Dang it. So excited about that one. And it sucks. Y'all ready? I'm ready. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> Let's go. Covering Fundamentalist Podcast begins in three. These podcasts, <laughs> podcasts, that sounds like a convention of beans or peas to me. I, podcast. Listen, in these recovering fundamentalists, they don't know the Bible either. What are the fundamentals? Inerrancy, virgin birth of Jesus Christ, Amen. substitutionary atonement, Amen. bodily resurrection Amen. of Christ, and the authenticity of miracles. Amen. Two. I am not a recovering fundamentalist. They're everywhere. They're all over the internet. They want to be, uh, what do they call it? Recovering from fundamentalism. They're everywhere. And I think to myself, well, you were just stupid to begin with. And if there's such a word, you're stupider now. We ain't recovering from nothing good, neighbor. We're reviving from the Holy Ghost. Somebody say man, Everybody wants to focus on recovering. Oh, you're recovering. Oh, you need yeah. help. You need therapy. You're recovering. Let's focus on fundamentalists. We're recovering fundamentalism back from people who have hijacked it. We are biblical True. family. We are the fundamentalists. Man. That'll make a Baptist want to speak in tongues right there, boys. One. I'm going to tell you one thing. Uh, we better stay uh, in the old paths. But what are the old paths? I've heard that my whole life, and nobody's ever been able to tell me what the old paths or the old time religion really is because it's whatever era you mm -hmm. overly romanticize in your mind as being when the church was it, right. Mm. Like it, lump it, pump it, chump it, take it across the street and dump it. We've raised a generation that is ashamed of our forefathers and act like they were somehow done wrong in the way they were brought up and they were damaged and they were scarred because they were raised in a home that had standards and convictions and kept them on the old time way. You got their number, boys. Y'all thought you started the podcast. You went and started a movement.
Thanks for joining us for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Make sure to stay tuned at the end of the show to hear more about the RFP sponsors. Now, here's your host for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, Nathan Cravat, J.C. Groves, and Brian Edwards. So, well, first of all, let me just say that this is a huge honor. Um, having watched your videos and watched your online interviews and then, you know, praying and talking to my wife and saying, I just think it'll be impossible, but I'm going to reach out and uh, see if I get a response to have gotten a response from you. First of all, uh, that says a lot about you. Oh, thank you. And uh, just thank you so much for this honor. Um, it's an absolute joy to know that we can have a, a great conversation yep. about a difficult subject yeah. with the hope of helping people. Yeah, um, I know my heart's not to be militant or uh, to condemn anyone. I right. think about John three sixteen. What a great verse that God sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the next verse is, is often overlooked but it could possibly be the most beautiful of the two verses that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Yep. That's just beautiful. And yep. so I know my heart in this and your heart in this is not condemnation, but rather care and compassion. I want us to dive into the conversation. Sure. I want to do less talking. I want to hear you do more talking. Yeah. Uh, because you're going to be far more helpful than I could ever be. I think a lot of times people expect conversations like this to be almost ignorant on some level because truth now in our culture is viewed as being ignorant. Yeah. But you approach this conversation in such a profound way that um, you you dispel that myth. You put that to rest. And, um, and so thank you for being willing, willing to answer some difficult questions. You bet. And by the way, isn't it great when you can own your story? Yeah. Yeah, it feels good. It's very um, freeing, as a matter of fact. You don't have to be afraid of your story once you own it. Yeah. And you realize that you're perfectly loved by God. Yeah. I know for you, you encountered transgender issues very early mm -hmm. as the result of an influence of another individual. So before you even knew the term transgender. Mm-hmm or you knew the confusion or the issues that, that that life would cause, you were already being influenced. Can you just walk us through sure. what the early part of your life looked like and how that confusion for you started early? Yeah, that's so important. It's a pleasure for me to be here. It's a pleasure to talk about this. And we, we hope that people come away with a better understanding of what this is about um, in our conversation, the questions that we answer. But I was four years old. I'm 81 years old now, so I'm dealing with this for 77 years. Mm -hmm. On some level, some experience uh, has been involved in the last 77 years of my life. So it was 1944 Wow. when this started for me, when my grandmother was cross-dressing me. And, and of course, a four-year-old has absolutely no idea um, what the consequences are going to be of an adult cross-dressing them. 
And mm-hmm. I think that's that's one of the things I think that's uh, that we need to talk about and, and, and get into the conversation because we see a lot of parents affirming young people or our, some of our public offices are affirming young young people in this. And the fact of the matter is, you know, this is the thing that I've really learned from my own experience is you cannot affirm somebody in a different gender without saying there's something wrong with you this way. Mm. You see, the mm-hmm. first, you, but kids don't learn. I didn't probably learn that until 55, 60 years after right. the, and, and I realized that that affirmation that she made me a purple dress, she put me in the dress, told me how cute I was, what she was really signaling at that time was, you're not a good boy, or there's something wrong with you, a boy, or you need to be a girl. And this messaging is where the confusion starts for anybody who's going through this, especially a young child, regardless of whether they're four years old or three or seven or 10, the message is still the same. There must be something wrong with you because you're not affirming me as a boy. Mm. I was a scruffy little kid, but she didn't affirm me or tell me how cute I was or how good I was or how handsome I was or whatever. She only affirmed me when I was wearing the dress. So that messaging is something that we call indoctrination uh, and it's harmful. It's actually psychological and emotional child abuse. And we need to call it what it is. And so when we're damaging young people, just like my grandma did me, so that's that's kind of the first thing we need to understand. And then when I talk about the word consequences as a result of cross-dressing, and grandma said, you know, she was bright. She said, this is our little secret. Mm. Now, she didn't want my parents to know. Now, we all know that if you're keeping a secret, there's something wrong. Correct. And it doesn't matter whether you're you know, looking at pornography or whether you're having an affair outside of your marriage or whether you're cross-dressing somebody, you know it's wrong. Right. And so grandma knew there was something wrong with it, but a four-year-old boy doesn't know what's wrong with it. So for two and a half years, this was a secret. But uh, I don't know what word to attach to it, but after two and a half years, I sort of got... Uh, I got so excited about being affirmed that I wanted to take the purple dress home mm. and put the dress on when my parents weren't around so I would so I could remember those affirmations. So so it's sort of an addiction or it's the planting of the seeds that I didn't feel. I began to not feel right about who I was unless I was in the purple dress that got me all the affirmations. So you can see how this is so insidious and destructive mm. because I was a boy. Right. I wasn't a girl. And so the consequences when I took the dress home and my mom found the dress in my bottom dresser drawer because I snuck it in there, but she'd put something in the drawer and found it. She goes, where did this come from? Well, then the house exploded in an argument between my dad and, you know, my dad talking about the mother-in-law doing this to her boy. Mm-hmm. His boy, he exploded. There's a big fight. The purple dress disappeared, but the damage was done. Right. And so, Dad, you know, uh, Dad was a great guy, and um, everybody loved him, including me. But he was so frustrated with what Grandma did or his mother-in-law did to me that he didn't know what to do. But the only thing he could think of was uh, to use heavy discipline on me, and and I think like a blacksmith putting steel in a hot fire, he was going to pound on me and shape me into the boy that he thought I should be wow. with heavy discipline. And so he used a hardwood floor plank across my butt 
and he was strong, hard with me in an effort. I think he was frustrated, he was scared, and I don't blame him for any of that. I, I think anybody who didn't know what's going on, because again, like you mentioned, there's there's really no words. Nobody's talking about it. We don't we don't know what this is. Just Especially avoid... back at that time. Exactly, because we're only in the mid-1940s by this time. And so uh, the hardwood floor plank uh, was sort of the message sender, right? And then the next thing was my dad had an adopted um, brother who was in his teens, who was um, not the most stable individual in the world. He drank a little too much, and he thought that I would be really good uh, target for sexual molestations. Mm -hmm. And so he began, and we've talked about that, the sexual molestations began. And so when I talk about the consequences, and I think to me, I always want to make this point. Had it not been for the purple dress and grandma put me in the dress, I wouldn't have been hit with a hardwood floor plank. Right. I would not have been sexually molested because it was only because of the dress that I became fair game. So anybody listening to us talk about this today, you need to understand that when you're doing this to a young child, the consequences are oftentimes going to be very devastating. They're not just psychological and emotional, but they, they can become sexual. Mm -hmm. And so you have, you know, the three strikes you're out kind of thing. Cause right. Now I'm off and running. I, I'm, by this time, eight or nine years old. I don't know what to do with the information I got. I told my mom and dad what Fred had done, and uh, they just said, no, Fred would never do that. So they, mm. it was kind of so unbelievable. So then all these seeds are planted over this period of time as a youngster for maybe six years, and I didn't know what it was. And, and it wasn't until the early 50s when... Christine Jorgensen made headlines in a newspaper as a Marine or an Army man or something that they said is a transsexual. They did surgery and came out as a female. Um, what they uh, didn't tell you was that Christine Jorgensen was an alcoholic. So anyway, that was the first sort of like, well, that must be me. And so I think we all do this. We all want to try to connect to something with the pain that we're experiencing. We don't even realize that it's pain. But when, when we go through early life events and we don't know what to do with them, we try to find a place to put them. Correct. Oftentimes, we put them in the wrong place because mm. we're, we're not mature enough to know where to put them or how to use them or what they're, what's going to happen down the road. I mean, how would I know I was going to be 81 years old and still talking about what my grandma did to me? Yeah, so, so I do have a question. Were your mom and dad not as affirming was your grandmother more affirming of you when when you had on the purple dress than you would be accustomed to um, did you look up to your grandma you desired her affection because you know kids are so impressionable yeah and i heard someone say a little while back to someone else just be yourself and i said no one is no we're all a, the result of our experiences and our influences so did your grandma approve you more so than your family? Do you think that's something that was missing in your life that you were longing for and that made you even more susceptible? No, I, I don't think so. I think it's important for us to understand that um, my dad affirmed me, um, but here's the thing. When you take a young boy and you've got one person affirming you this way and another person or group of people affirming you this way, you're, you're, you're 
causing tremendous confusion because, and, and the other thing is that you're sucking the life out of this kid. Because, mm -hmm. you know, their early development is so critical. They're taking in every bit of information and, and the world around them. And it became very confusing. And it's hard to unwind. Even if, if mom and dad were more affirming, they probably couldn't override this negative tone that was going on because all I felt at first was the negative side of it. What's wrong with me as a boy? But then there's this point of time where you become, I think, addicted or this affirming is a very powerful. Who doesn't want to be affirmed, like you right. pointed out? Right. So uh, it's almost like feeding somebody this great alcohol, right? It's a drug. Mm -hmm. And so you get to where you want that. I think never under any circumstances should you ever affirm a child in a different gender. You're committing such hideous child abuse, how harmful it is to the individual in their early development. So I think people have this idea that, uh, you know, because transgender is now a word that all of us are familiar with, just a few years ago, well, I'm not even sure that I'd ever said the word transgender. Right. And now just because of the culture we're living in, I find myself now using that word far more regularly. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know exactly where this ideology originated, where it came from. Yeah, well, it, it started way back in the early 1900s, but it didn't, get, didn't take hold until Kinsey uh, did his study on kids. And Kinsey was, um, you know, not a healthy individual. And he was friends with uh, Harry Benjamin and John Money. But the key factor in these individuals, and I put this in my book, Paper Genders, it has the history of it. They were pedophile activists. Pedophilia, it was the cornerstone of the idea of making boys look feminine and to make them more attractive to the predators. So mm. these are a group of people who felt that having sex with young boys was appropriate. In fact, they all were very much advocates for this. In fact, everybody they hung out with had the same idea. So it, it really was birthed out of pedophilia. These three men were kind of the pioneers in the 50s and they came through this time. And, and John Money uh, at Hopkins, who didn't do the surgeries, but he convinced people we should be doing these surgeries. And it sort of came about with uh, Kinsey brought somebody to Benjamin uh, and said, you know, uh, this is a, an effeminate boy. Maybe we can give him hormones and change his gender. And they sent him off to Europe and did the surgery, but he disappeared. So they have no history about whether the person committed suicide, whether he mm -hmm. was happy or anything. But they were off and running. And then money got John Hopkins to begin to do the surgery. In 1966 was the first one they did at the gender clinic. And so, um, and that one made big news in the Times, and that was the first time people started talking about the word transgender, transsexual. And, and so over the next 10 years, uh, Hopkins did about 50 of the surgeries, so there was, wasn't a lot of them. But um, then they did a study in the late 70s. They went back and reviewed them all and did a study with Paul McHugh, and the study revealed that none of them were better off that mm. all they were were men who still had the same problems, but had been altered for life. And that um, it, it really didn't improve their life one bit. 
And so um, they it, actually that study began to shut down all the gender clinics that were beginning to open. And what one of the most interesting things is now McHugh is a, a Catholic and a person of faith. And so people kind of wrote him off because of the faith based thing. But there was another individual. Uh, he was at the Harry Benjamin Clinic and he was running the clinic and at the same time that McHugh was running his clinic. And this guy was a homosexual activist. Mm. And he worked at the clinic administering hormone therapy for six years to 500 people. And so uh, at the end of the six years, he came out to a bunch of clinicians in Tappan, New York. And he said, what I've found over the last six years in working with this population that is causing too much harm, too much unhappiness, and too many suicides. Wow. And he said, what I'm now going to do is I'm going to change my course because he was an endocrinologist given hormones. He said, now I'm going to become a psychiatric doctor. So he created the problem, saw that he was a part of the problem, and now he's trying to help cure the problem. Yeah, his name is Dr. Charles L. Illenfeld. He's still alive today. He recognized that giving them hormones was harmful. He recognized that doing surgery on him actually caused them to commit suicide. And so he was the first one. There was a paper on that. It was 1979. So you were influenced early in life. You weren't aware of where the ideology originated. You, no. weren't, you weren't wise to all that. You weren't mm -hmm. a part of all that. So there's information out there that you didn't have. You were trying to navigate the confusion on your own. Right. So can you talk a little bit about what did that internal struggle feel like? You know, I know for me, um, depression has been um, a part of our family for the ages. And I tell people often when things are the quietest, that's when your mind is the loudest. Yeah. You know, because your mind, you're having an ongoing conversation with yourself about all the time. Yeah. What did that internal war, that internal conflict what did that feel like? Well, you know, when, when I heard about Christine Jorgensen, and it wasn't long after that, I adopted uh, an internal name that nobody knew about, an internal identity called Crystal West. Hmm. I don't know where that came from, but it was, sounded interesting at the time. It does. You know, so Crystal West was my female persona, but it was inside. and But there was this constant thing. I, I, I liken it to having a radio in your head that won't shut off saying there's something wrong with you, you need to be a girl. So uh, that you, you somehow you need to change. And that was kind of an offspring of seeing that it was done. That's what they do. That must be who I am. I, this thing played out. And, and I was not a homosexual. I, and so 90% of the people that I work with today who've gone through this are heterosexual men who had a damaged early life issue. And so I never, I never got into homosexual. never, I had a beautiful girlfriend in high school. Her name was Lola Joy Phipps. I mean, come on, it's a great name. So, you know, I was a, a guy with a girl. And so the homosexual part was never there. And, and, and I, I, I think it's so important for us to understand that we our identities at our core can get broken so easily, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's about your sexuality. Don't you think people though now think if you're transgender, you are homosexual? 90% of the people I work with are heterosexual. They've never had a homosexual experience. They might've been molested, 
by somebody right. who, who had that experience. But they, um, many of them are actually repulsed by the idea of being homosexual. Unfortunately, some of the adult men who are married with children are suffering from something called autogynephilia. And autogynephilia or transvestic fetish disorder. Autogynephilia is where a man will dress up in women's clothing and he becomes the object of his sexual affection. And I think a lot of people would hear that and think on some level that that's, you know, extreme mental disorder. But Walt, on some level, isn't that where we are as a culture now with pornography in that a person lives sexually satisfying themselves, focusing on themselves? It's not healthy. It's very destructive to people. It, they, they, many of them can't ever relate to a person. I, I'm working with a guy right now who's almost 50 years old, and he started out with pornography and doing some of the things we're talking about. He is incapable of a relationship. That's how destructive it is. Mm. So if we, if we can begin to talk about the consequences of all these different behaviors, none of them are good. What was your thought process? Like, What kind of thoughts did you have? You know, for example, did you see yourself as not being like the other people who was who were in your peer group? Were you trying to be more like them? Were you trying to fit in? I was on the football team, the B football team for the little guys. I was somewhat athletic, but I still had this other side. So I think there was there was many things going on. There was always I was always questioning myself. The battle in my head was trying to take over Walt, and Walt was trying to be okay with who he was. So he had these these two personalities within my head going, how is this going to work out? But, you know, we're in the 1950s, and there weren't a whole lot of this discussion about this. No. Um, so the battle was fierce. And so I was cross-dressing at the time. So that, mm -hmm. you know, Crystal would have her time, Walt would have his time. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, how you can, uh, how who you are privately can so differ from who you are publicly because we learn to put on a front. You know, Jesus often dealt with the Pharisees and the word Pharisee was literally connected to one that wore a mask. Yeah. So they would parade themselves as religious authorities, but really privately they were broken, sinful people. Jesus said, outwardly you're clean and whole. Yeah. Inwardly you're filled with dead man's bones. I think I think that describes a lot of the population. We we try to present ourselves as being whole and well, and then inwardly we're broken. And most people have no outlet to talk about that. Most people never even engage in that level of a depth of conversation. That's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're hiding these things. We're, we're hiding what's going on. We're hiding the pain. And identifying as a transgender, you're not born that way. Now, people don't like to talk about it. They think that's horrible and and all that. There isn't one situation where anybody needs to engage in hormone therapy or surgery. Recently, I've been telling people every chance I get like I'm gonna do right now, is that we don't need gender therapists, we need trauma therapists. And mm. if, we, if we can shift from thinking about this in that way, because the, the issues are not about gender sex. You, can't, you cannot separate gender and sex anyway. We know that no. uh, on every level. But the fact of the matter is, uh, it's not about gender dysphoria. So what happened, and I think this is so important to understand, prior to 2013, this was called gender identity disorder. 
Well, that meant that the clinicians then had to look for a disorder. Mm. And, and the advocates for this didn't want people looking for a disorder. Right. So they decided to put gender in front of dysphoria in 2013 in the DSM and call it gender dysphoria so that people could have quicker access to hormone therapies and surgery, not because it was going to be more effective therapy for them, but wow. they wanted to take away the stigma of having a disorder. Well, we need to be able to deal with disorders and, not, and forget the right. stigma so we can actually treat the disorder and not fill them full of unnecessary hormones and cut body parts off. I mean, that's a powerful statement. You can put a Band-Aid on a cancer and it doesn't change the fact that the cancer is still there. Right. And I think so often that's what we try to do. And, and I think what you just said leads us perfectly into the next question that, that I would love to hear an answer to. What was the influence that convinced you to have a life-altering, body-altering, future-altering surgery? Because that's a huge step. Yeah. Well, I went to the therapist, uh, Dr. Paul Walker, who was at the time the number one most knowledgeable piece person in the United States, in fact, in the world. He wrote the International Standards of Care for Gender Dysphoria. He was the chairperson. Mm. He was the expert. And so when I went to him and he told me, uh, you have gender dysphoria. He said you have gender identity disorder, but he actually told me during that conversation, we're changing it to gender dysphoria. Because he knew at that time, because he was on a team that was trying to get it right. changed. It took a long time. But he told me what you what you need is hormone surgery and and the and all the rest of the stuff, you know, the sex change surgery, which is hard to talk about even today, even though it was nineteen eighty three. When when he said that there was no other voice. So it was the lack of an influence. And today I want to be the influence where people can hear what I didn't hear. Because wow. there was no voice at the time. There was no Walt Heyer saying, the bridge is out. The bridge is out. Don't go over this. You know, we were talking a few moments ago about my heart procedure. I didn't know the doctor that was going to be doing that procedure. I was referred to that doctor by another doctor. I never even met that man, and I'm going to let him work on my heart, which could either continue my life or end my life. But because he was a doctor and this was his area of expertise, I trusted him with my life, which meant in that moment I was trusting him with my future. I was trusting him with my family's future. I was trusting him with the, the future of the ministry that God has allowed me to serve. We trust the doctor. Did you did you feel like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because again, goes back to there is no other voice. When I work with somebody who's contacting me, I always ask them this simple question: What caused you to not like who you are? Man, that's a great question. What caused you to not like who you are, and why do you think you'll be better off as someone else? Why do you want to erase who you are? is totally self-destructive behavior. You have to destroy who you are to try to become someone who you can never be. They're traumatized by early childhood experiences. Now, of course, there are kids today that what I call, they're part of a social contagion group. They get on the internet. And so many of them 
may not have the total experience of adverse childhood experiences, but they're they're spending all their time on the internet and they're either looking at pornography, like one 15-year-old boy spent his time looking at pornography and he told his parents, you know, I, I identify as a girl. And so the parents got him hormone blockers and he went all the way up until he was 18 and his parents went and got him his surgery, had his genitals cut off, identified his girl at 19. He wrote me an email and said, Walt, can you help me get my life back? I feel like a Frankenstein monster. Mm-hmm. And why did that happen? Pornography. Well, it's been proven that it actually changes the way your brain functions. Yes. And and yet as a culture, we're also embracing that. You know, Why now, Walt, all of a sudden, are we are we being told uh, reject the science, reject basic biology? Well, I think you know they built such a platform on this, and uh, about the word transgender, right? And I I, I want to say right now I don't believe there is a transgender in existence anywhere in the world. They don't mm. exist. It's it's still an idea, and no one in the history of mankind has ever changed their gender. No, so you can't. If so, if we use the word transgender, we're actually affirming the idea that they were successful in doing so. Or if somebody transitioned, I don't use those words. I tell people nobody has gender dysphoria. You didn't transition, and you're not a transgender. Now let's get down to what caused you to not like who you are, and we're going to look at the comorbid disorder that's actually causing you to not like who you are. We're going to treat that. And we're going to heal you. You're going to be redeemed and restored by Christ. Wow. (laughs) That's a sermon. Why should we be concerned about where this ideology and this language and this this cultural flow, why should we be deeply concerned about where it leads people and where it is going to lead people? I am so glad. That is the question I've been hoping you'd ask today. Because that is the real question here. The reason we should be concerned is because this ideology, you see, if we look look at this from a standpoint of the church, the church is here to change the world. Mm. That's the purpose of the church. The church is here to change the world. If we accept that there are transgenders transitioning and gender dysphoria, then what we've done is we've allowed the world to change the church. The world cannot change the church. We are here to change the world. And that's, that's my message. You see, we have to get back to where we're telling the truth. And, and you know what? That answer is so accurate because already the influence is being felt. For example, you know, there was a time if you preached the truth of Scripture, you offended an unsaved world. Yeah. Now, if you preach the, the truth of Scripture... You offend people who are sitting in the room who identify themselves as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. Already people are saying, we can't believe our church is courageous enough to address these issues. We can't believe our church is courageous enough to have this conversation. When did it start requiring courage to declare truth, the truth of God's word to believers? That's not courageous. That's the fundamentals of the calling. You know, everybody who comes before Christ is broken. Yes. We're all broken. People who come in as identifying as transgender are either going to be compliant 
toward receiving the gift of Jesus Christ, or they're going to be defiant and say, no, God made me this way. The defiant ones are not going to receive the Holy Spirit. Sorry. You know, and, and I'm sure you've preached on it. The fact of the matter is, we have a man, we have a woman. We have sperm, we have an egg. They get together and they form a, a, an individual, but it's only a male or female. And, and, and to give you an idea how far they've gone to destroy the ideology of the church is that they say, now they say, what gender were you assigned at birth? That catches my hair on fire because <laughs> the fact of the matter is that was, a, that was done at conception. Well, you know, Romans chapter 1 gives a lot of insight into this issue. When people no longer want to retain God in their thoughts. And really, this is actually against God's creative order. Absolutely. It's placing God on trial. The Bible says male and female, he created them. Male for female, female for male. And... It's, it's ultimately saying, God, we're not going to retain you in our thoughts, even to the extent that we will rebel against your creative order. It's, it's an attempt to erase God's authority over humanity. It's, it's, it's an attempt to erase God's authority over what belongs to him. Exactly. And you know, if we take a step back and look at what, how that's done, if we can erase, like we used the word before, if you can erase man and you can erase woman and then it can become anything, then the, the foundation of the church, which is called the family, mom and dad, is not there. The church is the last stand for truth on saving men and women. That is so important for us to understand. The church is the last stand. If they don't stick to scripture and they don't stand up for truth, there will be no man, no woman, and no family, and ultimately no church. How frightened should we be right now by the over-sexualization of our children? Well, we should be very frightened. Children are being sexualized. Yeah. And right now there's a cultural attempt to push this message out front and center. It sickens me more than I can tell you. And that's why it's so important for the church to breathe into this, the truth. And we, we need to protect our children. And I'm glad that there, there are many states now stepping up and doing that. Alabama did. You cannot give a child hormones uh, or surgery until they're 18 years old. If you do, you're going to jail. This is child abuse. If we give them hormones and change their genders, we're crippling them from finding out who they are. And they and the, mm. the thing that's really destructive that I find today is they all want to have children and they can't. People need to understand that there's studies out of Sweden that shows after you go through this procedure, not before, after you go through this procedure, you're 19 times more likely to die by suicide. How sheltered should our children be? How how far should we go to either make sure they're not exposed to this cultural message? Or do you believe it's better since the volume of the message has been increased so much so? Do you believe it's better for parents to go ahead and have the conversation with their kids and not shelter them? There's several things I wouldn't do if I was raising children today. I wouldn't let them have a cell phone. And if they had a computer, it would have to be in the living room 
right where mom and dad could see it. And if I gave them a cell phone, it wouldn't be one that they could access things on. It would be a flip phone that they could call mom or dad and say, come and get me. I I think early on in, in an end of a child's life, we need to do as much protection. And people aren't going to perhaps like what I'm saying. Even discussions in the house around your children can influence them. And we need to even be careful about that. And so we cannot today protect our children enough. Right. And we know the evil one is really good at telling lies. He's been practicing a long time. Long time. So how did you feel after you had gone through life-altering experiences and it failed to quieten the storm or settle the confusion? Right. Well, that's when I knew the whole thing was a fraud. And I even went to my surgeon and Dr. Walker, who wrote the standards of care, when I was trying to reverse my birth certificate back to Walt, I said, well, I need to go to court to get a document to change it back to Walt Mail. I want you to come to court or present a document to Superior Court of San Mateo, California, showing that your surgery changed me to a female. I have the document. It's posted in San Mateo right now. They said in their document, and I want the people to hear this, the surgeon who performed 5,000 sex change surgeries said you cannot change anyone's gender sex. I wish that message were allowed to be heard. Well, it's going to get heard now. Yes, sir. We've got to do everything we can to make sure it does. Right. Another question that a lot of people have asked, you know, now transgender has also become an issue of grammar. Mm-hmm. People choosing their pronouns. How should believers approach this issue so that they're not a jerk for Jesus, but they actually seem like a caring individual? You know, we've sat here and talked for a long time. I've never used a pronoun. Right. I've never used your name. Right. So, you know, what's interesting is that we don't use pronouns if we're talking to somebody. Hmm. We don't even need to use somebody's name. So the whole idea about pronouns is totally blown out of proportion. When we use words, you know, the Bible says what's in the heart comes out of the mouth, which means we're starting to believe what we're saying. So, Walt, we've got to end our conversation. Um, I hate to see it see it draw to an end because there's literally, you're, you're like an encyclopedia. There's There's an endless amount of questions I would love to ask. But a couple of questions just to end our conversation. Were you ever rejected by the church? Yeah. Yeah, I I went to churches, Laura. My, my psychotherapist at the time, uh, Dr. Dennis Guernsey at Fuller Seminary, had a friend who was a pastor at a church, and, and I, it was close to where I was living at the time. And he said, you can go to that church on Sunday, because I said, I'd like to go. You know, even though I'm Laura, I'd like to go. So I went and signed in as Laura Jensen, I sat with the ladies. In fact, I sat with his wife in the pews, and he gave this Sunday message. And after church was over, I got the cup of coffee and the donut and milled with everybody, got my car and went home. Later on that afternoon, I looked out my front window, and here comes Pastor down the sidewalk. And uh, he knocked on the door, and I opened the door up, and he said, we don't want your kind in our church. 
And so I looked at him and I actually started laughing because I actually thought it was kind of hilarious. I said, really? Tell me what kind you want in your church. Now, the church is a place for broken people. Yeah. But the church isn't a place for defiant people. If we're running into people that are there to change the church, then we need to stand on, on our ground. If you're there to be defiant toward Jesus Christ, you're not going to receive Jesus Christ. You're only going to be a disruptor to the people who are trying to find Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invited the audience that most people reject. And by saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, he was saying, Come to me, everyone. Because on some level, we're all weary and heavy laden. Yeah. So what, who was it and what was it? Because you were living as Laura Jensen for mm -hmm. how many years? Eight. Eight years. And so you had, you had completely adopted an entirely different identity. Mm -hmm. Who was it that influenced you to start thinking about Jesus and finding hope in Christ? And what was the journey that led you to actually realizing, wait a minute, my need is not gender reassignment. My need is not hormone therapy. My need is not a different human identity. My need is spiritual. I need to find my identity in Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was a twofold thing because I went to a psychotherapist, two of them primarily Christian psychotherapists, started dealing with the trauma that I should have dealt with before from being put in a purple dress being hit with a hardwood floor plank and being sexually abused. Mm. That's what needed to be addressed. I didn't do that until eight years after I was identifying. I went to the psychologist and then worked on the spiritual component. And during a prayer, the Lord came to me and redeemed and restored my life in that prayer. And mm. spoke to me and said, you'll be safe with me forever. And he, he is absolutely right. And I've been serving him ever since. So how should the church care for people in the transgender community. A little while back, it was on a Sunday morning, I was up near the platform. I noticed a person walk in the auditorium. It was a Sunday when the auditorium was crowded, but I noticed this person walk in the auditorium. It was obviously uh, a guy. Mm -hmm. He had a little facial hair and mm -hmm. it was obviously a guy, but he had on a blouse he had on a short mini skirt, he had on high heels, mm -hmm. and he had on full makeup. Mm -hmm. And I watched that moment as a pastor because I knew that was going to be a test for the people in our congregation. Sure. I was so excited to see people walking up to that person and the warmest of welcomes. Um, I heard people repeatedly saying, we're so glad you're here. And he ended up sitting with um, a lady who uh, attended our congregation. And, and so I watched that individual be welcomed. And then at the end of the service, I found what you have shared to be true. Uh, when he was a child, his dad and his uncle started molesting him. He was molested almost every day of his life. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was living a homosexual lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But I told him that day, you're not homosexual. You're not even transgender. You're broken and confused. Yeah. We had a great conversation. He ended up embracing me before he left and just weeping. Yeah. 
How should the church care for the people in the transgender community? Just the way you did. That's what we should do. You know, we need, you know, the, Jesus Christ is about relationships. Broken people need relationships. Hmm. So I always hope that there's going to be somebody in the church, whether it's somebody on staff or somebody, an elder or deacon or somebody in the church that will walk alongside those people that are struggling like this and they're showing their struggle through their dress and their behavior. If we can come alongside them, I say take them to a coffee shop. Spend time with them. Spend a lot of time with them. Get to know them so that they can begin to trust what you have to say. And there'll become a time when you'll have the influence and the opportunity to help them recognize the pain that they're suffering from. Maybe find the counseling they need. Maybe pray with them. And maybe they'll have the same opportunity to find redemption and restoration in Christ. But if they're not in the church, it's not going to happen. Well... We're, we're going to wrap this up, but you just made me think about the day that Jesus was sitting uh, for a meal in Simon's house and the woman came in and washed Jesus' feet with her hair, with her tears. And the Pharisee said, if he knew what manner of woman she was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. Not even realizing Jesus was in the house with the expectation of the arrival of that very woman. Um, I think a lot of times Christians aren't willing to build relational equity with people right. who are too different. Yeah. People that we consider to be too far beyond the boundary. Yeah. And what this should actually do is challenge believers to look more like Jesus. Walt if you knew this would be the last time you would ever be able to share the gospel with people in the transgender community or people struggling with sexual identity, regardless of what that might include, how would you share the gospel with those people yeah. who desperately need to hear it? Yeah, I think everybody, it doesn't really matter what your issues are. Everybody needs to get on her knees and face the fact that we're broken and recognize what caused us our, our tremendous difficulty and confusion and confess those things on our knees to Jesus and recognize he can and will redeem and cut the shackles that you're being held by off and you become free like I am. That's where you receive the Holy Spirit and the whole idea, everything that we should do Every step we take with our lives, everything that we do with our lives must honor and glorify Jesus Christ. I've been able to live for many years, married now in May, next 25 years, clean and sober 36 years, working with people for 30 years, all for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world. Come back to Jesus. Amen. When I hear your voice, there's one statement that you've made that I've loved beyond all the other statements that I've heard you make. It's never too late to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Thank you for being a testimony to that. Walt Heyer, thank you for giving me the opportunity and the privilege to sit down and have this conversation. 
You betcha. It's my pleasure. I've had a lot of fun today, and I would not have gotten to meet you if I had just sat there with my redemption. Absolutely. I'm glad we're friends. You bet. Hey, God Thank bless, you. Walt. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.